Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Tell me more. I want to know all the constellations. Well, there's Jerry the Cowboy, and that big dipper-looking thing is Alan the Cowboy. Conversations about collaboration, episode 27. Dr. Rebecca Kehoe joins me. She is an associate professor of human resource studies at Cornell University, my alma mater. Go red. We talk about her research into stars, whether the pandemic has given them more or less power, and companies such as Uber, Google, and Amazon. Let's rock. Rebecca, where does this pod find you? I'm in New York. Ithaca, New York, and that takes me back. How are they doing with the the pandemic and the the college town? Uh, Surprisingly well, I guess, for being a college town. It's also, as you know, a a fairly small town um, in the middle of nowhere. And so we've uh, been able to keep the numbers pretty contained. And both universities in town have that to some extent. Okay. Good. Well, let's jump right into it. Um, your research focuses on stars and organizations as opposed to non-stars. Uh, talk at a high level about what you've researched and some of your findings, particularly most recently published research. Yeah, sure. So um, so stars we think about as sort of the, the best of the best in terms of the, the value they're creating for, for organizations. So this is often in terms of their individual productivity as you might know, individual productivity is likely also to lead to status, visibility. Um, and so it creates an interesting dynamic when for organizations bringing in stars who are a very, very select few people in the organization relative to the rest of the organization. We say non-stars and it's kind of a touchy term. Nobody wants to be considered a non-star, but it's kind of an, an easy, clean distinction uh, and so my research really focuses on the dynamics between stars and non-stars, the dynamics between stars and their broader organizations. So kind of going beyond this initial idea that stars are creating exceptional value through their individual productivity, I kind of ask, but what else does that mean? So what does that mean in terms of the status dynamics that form within organizations around stars? What does that mean for everybody around stars? Are, are stars good? Are they bad? Um, I, you know, I try to get at some of the dynamics that are at play that go a little bit beyond the surface. I've heard that a good programmer, or I should say a great programmer is worth a hundred times an average programmer. The, is that more or less true or does it depend on a bunch of factors? Yes. So, I mean, of course the the dollar value on this is going to vary across organizations, across industries. But when I teach about stars, I pull up statistics Really, it's across industries, across settings. The top performers are just outproducing by a huge, by a huge order, the average performer. Uh, so this this happens in programming. This happens in sales. This happens in R and D. This happens in invest. It's just something that we see kind of across the board, across settings. Um, and as I said, the and I think this is actually important. So I I, I study and I teach HR at Cornell. And one of the things that we focus on when when teaching HR and teaching HR strategy is the idea that 
it's really important for organizations to think about uh, what are the most important positions? What are those positions that, given your strategy, given how you're trying to create a competitive advantage, that are actually going to move the needle? So you're going to see more variability in some roles than others. You have the ability to um, to change performance more in some roles than others. So it's thinking about putting putting stars in or focusing on developing stars in those roles where they're actually going to contribute to the value of the organization. But, actually aligned with how you're trying to set yourself apart from competitors. So if that's the programming, then maybe that's where you want, you know, where you want to focus on hiring or developing your stars. Hmm. So would it be fair to say then that a company that places a premium on its products, like say Apple might have a different way of approaching the stars, non-stars dilemma than a company that operates at very low margins like Walmart. Tell me more about the intersection of stars and business strategy, because yeah, all companies are trying to make money but the way they do it is very different. Yeah, so that's this is actually a great question and two great examples. So if we think about if we think about Apple, they're they're going to want stars in their design positions, right? They're Apple's about product design. So I would actually go a step further and say we can go even beyond saying organizations that are differentiating based on their product and we can say how. So if we compare Apple and Samsung, right? they're going to be differentiating their products in different ways. Samsung is more about the sort of the major innovation through innovation where um, Apple's going to be more about the design, taking the established innovate, taking the established products and making them more user-friendly making them a little bit more sleek. So they're going to want to invest in talent in different positions. We think about Walmart, who's trying to uh, compete on margins. They're investing in supply chain. They're investing in, places where they can streamline their processes and become more efficient. That's fascinating stuff. Um, I've also noticed during my four years in academia that stars in terms of research were maybe held to a slightly different standard. Um, I know I won't name anyone, but I've come across folks who were amazingly prolific at research, but couldn't teach their way out of a paper bag. Yet they were fine because the university valued research. Was that just my experience or is that something that other academics have come across. So, I mean, I think, yeah, you could absolutely say that for academics. I think we can we can think about that more broadly across fields, across organizations. If someone is creating value and you're really dependent on them, you're going to turn a blind eye to things that maybe aren't quite as important for your organization. So this can be in terms of different dimensions of performance. So you're here you're talking about you know, I'm a star researcher, maybe I'm not a great teacher. There are two different dimensions of performance of, a, of an academic. But um, in other cases, we can see that in terms of our behavior more broadly. So you can see stars getting away with maybe treating their coworkers poorly with unethical behavior in some cases, and they're getting away with it because, and this is a generalization, but they may get away with it because the organization's so um, so dependent on that exceptional productivity that we're seeing. Mm. As you're talking, I'm thinking of a couple of tech companies that have been in the news quite a bit. First, Uber, which had a long history of a toxic culture and putting up with folks that weren't just um, questionable in the behavior, but downright abusive. I mean, Me Too started with um, Susan Fowler, who wrote that blog post and then ultimately a book on it, or at Google with Andy Rubin of Android and how for a long time, they got away with some really questionable behavior, but the people were rock stars. So they said, oh, you know, they'll, they'll learn. Um, I mean, in, an, in a Me Too error, is it even more dangerous for companies to put up with stars who do that type of thing? 
I think companies are becoming are getting to be held more accountable for it. Absolutely. Um, so maybe more dangerous from a, an external sort of public relations perspective, but internally, I think these behaviors have always been terrible, right? So sure, we have Me Too now that's sort of bringing these bringing these problems to light. But these problems have always existed and they've always had the same detrimental effect within organizations. So working within a toxic organization, where particularly where you have one or two individuals who, you know, sure, they're creating exceptional value through their performance, but they're creating hell for everyone else in the work environment. That's never been a good thing for anyone. Mm-hmm. What about when the stars don't use more collaborative tools? Um, I've seen folks say, oh, I don't do Slack or Microsoft Teams or whatever. I've got my way of doing things. And the implication is that I'm special. I'd argue that that really sets a dangerous tone as far as the culture is concerned. Am I completely off base there? No, I think I think that's absolutely true. I think to the extent that organizations are putting stars in the position where they've got all the leverage stars can get away with saying, this is the way I do things. And when they have that kind of leverage, then it becomes, this is the way I do things. And so this is the way we do things because now I'm, I'm kind of driving all of the, I'm driving um, just the culture around here. And, you know, just to back up for a second, stars can have, I I don't want to, I don't want to set this tone that stars are just bad for organizations and they create toxic environments Stars can be great for organizations. Stars can, um, they tend to, you know, they tend to develop status and influence and that can be really great when they use it in a positive way. So if people in an organization are looking up to stars, stars can provide guidance. They can provide mentoring. They can set really productive and positive work. They can create a collaborative culture. So all these things can work in favor of a star's peers and a star's, you know, the star's organization more broadly. On the flip side, when a star instead is in a position where they opt to sort of take advantage of their power, of their influence, and use it in a selfish way, a self-serving way, that's when things can get really problematic. And it can negatively affect not only their, their colleagues as individuals, but also, as you just suggested, the collaborative process, right? If, if, if we have a particular collaborative process or a set of collaborative tools a way that we do things that works really well for the organization and is consistent with the goals we're trying to achieve. And then you have one or two really powerful individuals saying, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to abide by that. I'm not going to go along with that. Things start to crumble a little bit. It strikes me that the stars may be less tolerant of changing their ways or ab- abiding by broken business processes because they know that it would take them off about four minutes to get probably a better offer across the street, right? I mean, they have to know. I mean, I remember at Cornell a million years ago, we talked about the erosion of the social compact and how rare it would be for someone to work for IBM or a big company for 25 or 30 years. Nothing that's happened since I graduated makes me think that that's changed. If anything, especially with the gig economy, that trend is just exacerbated, right? I mean, many people say, was it... um, Oh gosh, Reed Hoffman of LinkedIn, you're the CEO of your own career. 
so the idea that the idea that stars know that they have a better offer waiting for them, essentially, if they if they need it, if they want it, is that the yeah, there really isn't a stigma. I mean, I remember it it used to be again a million years ago when I went to school. If you were at a job every two to three years, you weren't stable. Now, if you stay at a company for fifteen or twenty years, people think that you've been institutionalized. Yeah, I think I think this is totally true. I think this. uh, So some of my some of my earlier research on stars focuses on the uh, the vulnerability of organizations when they sort of focus too much energy, too many efforts, too many resources on the star at the expense of their other employees. So it's really important for organizations to recognize a star does have a better offer elsewhere and is probably not afraid to leave if you're not kind of keeping them happy. One response to that could be, well, we better do whatever we can to make the star happy. We just talked about some of the problems of that mentality, right? You're you're risking a toxic work environment. You're you're risking the star taking advantage of that and making it putting a negative spin on it for the organization. So another answer is to make sure that we're not dumping all of our resources in a star, right? We're not. Yeah, we're investing in the star, of course, and we we want to get some value out of the star. That's why we hired them in the first place. But we're not so at the expense of our other capabilities at the expense of developing other employees and making sure we're investing in their opportunities too. So what does that mean if I'm the head of HR people operations or whatever we're calling it a company, do I need to pay more attention to training, recruiting, retention, succession, planning, all the above? What are some practical things, especially as you look towards this hybrid future of work? What, what, what are some practical um, tips? So all of these sort of all of the typical best practices, quote, best practices in HR are going to apply. And I would share here. Right. So, yeah, you want to invest in your pipeline in making sure you have a, a strong internal and external pipeline of candidates, not just in this for the stars role, but just more broadly for the organization. You want to be training and developing your employees, all of the above. If we're thinking specifically what this means, if you're going to have a star and you want to make sure you're managing the rest of the workforce effectively, we can think about things like pairing the star with other uh, with other employees so that they have developmental opportunities, giving other employees stretch assignments. So often, what we see is organizations, you know, you're going to give, you're going to put the star on your best clients, you're going to put the star on the most important accounts, which makes sense. You're going to get the best return when you have your best talent, right? Aligned with most important accounts and clients, Um, pairing other employees along the way. So that that does two things. One, they get non-stars get exposure to the star. So hopefully some of that, some of that expertise is going to rub off on them. That way, if the organization, if the star leaves the organization, they're kind of there to pick up the slack when to pick up the slack in those accounts and those relationships. But it also offers an important developmental opportunity so that if I, say, work with the star on a few more accounts, now I'm better positioned to take on my own accounts, you know, in the next year, whenever the timeline may be. It reminds me of something that Amazon and some of the other tech companies do. They'll appoint basically a technical assistant to, say, Jeff Bezos, right, and to follow that person around. And, and I know that some other companies have parroted that action. And I, I think that's really important. Sometimes it's it's just being there; it's the exposure. But the other thing that that off, the other thing that practice offers is visibility for that person, networking opportunities. Uh, 
which turn out to be really important when you're trying to grow in an organization and to develop your career, right? So it's not just seeing what it takes to be successful, but it's connecting with the people that are important in the organization and who are going to be making the key decisions. Put on your Swami hat for a minute. Are stars going to be more or less valuable in the future? I have my opinion, but I want to hear yours. More or less what? Valuable in the future. Valuable. Um, that's a good question. I think I think we're always going to see the um, I think we're always going to see the performance disparities that I talk about allow us to identify stars and you know and distinguish them from non-stars. I think to the extent that um, to the extent that we continue down a road of kind of more collaborative work and fewer long-term work arrangements or employment relationships. Um, I think we could see more value. I could, I think we could see more value in really good collaborative teams. Hmm. Here's one thesis. As I listen to you talk um, because of the pandemic and this first natural experiment working from home, couldn't you argue that stars potentially have more power or more leverage? Because think about it. If I live in Austin, Texas, and I don't want to leave, and I'm a rock star and I've got a, a wife and, and two young kids and I don't want to uproot them. But now working remote or hybrid or getting on a plane once a month is more tenable. Doesn't that effectively increase my options by an order of magnitude? I don't just have to look for jobs in Austin. I can look at jobs in basically anywhere on earth. I think that's a fair assessment. I've, I've heard the same assessment um, through the lens of the organizations at the same time saying, we now don't have to think about being so confined in our search for talent. We can search more broadly now that, you know, we can have people working remotely. Um, and so they may consider themselves to be less, less tied to a star, less tied to any particular star. And how did uh, you, and, Oh, sorry. Good. No, I was just going to say, so I think that could work. And I don't know which, you know, which side is going to benefit more on that front. Hmm. So I would imagine that more research will take place around this type of thing on, on many levels, but particularly, you know, what percentage of people are now more open. I've seen statistics anywhere from 20 to 30% of people are either going to quit their jobs after the pandemic subsides or will quit their jobs if they can't work, if not exclusively remote, then partially remote. They don't want to go back to Monday through Friday, nine to five in the office and one hour commutes each way. Yeah, I've I've seen similar reports. You know, I'm very curious. We're still in the middle of this, right? And I'm really curious to see what comes, you know, what comes out of this in one year and then where we are in five years. Because I think that it's very easy to kind of make assessments about what I want and how I see myself working. What I can compare now is where I was a year and a half ago and where I've been for the last year, which is working from home for the last year. Uh, we haven't yet seen the long-term, we've seen some short-term impacts for organizations and employees. We haven't yet seen the long-term impacts of these changes in work. And so it could be that what I think as an individual or what an organization thinks from an employer perspective, what they want for the next next year isn't necessarily gonna be what shakes out in the long run. And I, I don't know which way it will go, I just, as a researcher, I think, you know, I'm just thinking about, well, we, we can't necessarily make, uh, draw conclusions from such a short time period. Mm. And how did you become interested in this topic? 
in which topic? Stars. Oh, in stars. Uh, so I started out. I started out as a studying HR systems and how organizations align their HR investments with strategy, and in that, uh, basically to support you know competitive advantage and performance. And in that line of work, I I really came to the conclusion that that the two things are most important uh, that are supported by HR investments are the the human capital, the motivation of employees, and then the social context that we're creating in the organization that allows often collaboration, the creation of knowledge, exchange of knowledge. And so I started to be realist in the dynamic between the two, the, the skills of the knowledge and skills that employees are bringing, and then the social context that, um, that they're working in in the organization. And that led to kind of a, a thought process of, well, yeah, our, our knowledge and skills are really important. And we can think about broadly at a high level, if we invest in people from an HR perspective, we're going to have better skilled, more knowledgeable employees. But there's a lot of range in that. We're going to have range in employees. And so there were already the sort of uh, established research on STARS. And I started to think about from an HR perspective that the dynamic between people at different ends of that range, the different ends of the spectrum. You've got stars and then you have everyone else. And that's kind of how I came around to it. Hmm. Good stuff. We'll get you out of here on this. What book are you currently reading? I am reading Bird by Bird, which is a book from the 90s, I believe, by Anne Lamott. Uh, it's a book on writing. So she she's a writer, of course. She teaches, um, she teaches, actually, I don't, I don't know what she presently does. I don't. I don't even know if, um, if she's still around, which is terrible. She uh, she she has taught quite a bit on writing, and this book is sort of reflecting on everything she shares with her students on writing. Uh, she's a creative writer, and so it's not not the kind of writing that I do. But I I find a lot of the insights meaningful for me, meaningful for um, anyone who's kind of taking on in their life the work that they think is important and what they really value doing. And for me, what I've taken a lot taken out of this book is this idea of making sure we're doing the things that we're doing for the right reasons. So she, she kind of starts out the book talking about aspiring writers thinking like, well, when I just get that book published, when I get my first book published or my second or my third book published, things are going to be glorious. And of course they're not right. And she talks about doing it for the process. You should write because you love to write. And I think that's not to say we shouldn't do things because of the outcome we're after, but we should also make sure that we're passionate about the the act of what we're doing, the journey and the, the process along the way. That's yeah, good advice. I try to tell folks who want to write books, you know, hopefully it blows up and you'll be a rock star, but very few people are stars. <laughs> Uh, but if you enjoy the process and are just pleased to more or less looking internally, yes, we all want the external awards, but those you can't control. So interesting stuff. Well, thanks for joining me, Rebecca. Yeah, thanks for having me. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.
Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.